world events, which are rapidly changing at this present time, make us very cognizant of the times in which we live, knowing that we're in the latter days and that Jesus Christ will soon return. It can be very discouraging when we look at what lies ahead, but I hope all of us, brethren, because God's revealed to us that there's a new beginning. It's not the end that lies ahead. There's a new beginning, which is just around the corner. It's a beginning that we're here to prepare for. God's called us to responsibilities, to opportunity, and to fulfill those opportunities. It takes preparation. In the scripture, in Revelation chapter 5, we see when the saints of God literally acknowledge the resurrection and the tremendous opportunities that they've been given. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, They sang a new song, saying, In that song, we read, says, And have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. The statement here is an interesting one, and it, that it says God has made us, that God has prepared us, he has worked in our life, so that when we're given that responsibility, we will be prepared. And the purpose of this sermon, brethren, is to help you understand the important elements that God uses in preparing us for that responsibility. Because when you know what's going on, and you understand the preparation, then you can be much more effective in your success and your participation. In our world today, which is very specialized, we have many people who hire personal trainers. If you are a professional athlete, you will select a trainer that will work with you and with your body so that your muscles and your coordination and your natural abilities are maximized through a training program. And so people hire, a golfer will hire a personal trainer, someone who plays football or baseball. They all have coaches and trainers to help them to maximize the natural gifts that they have. When you look in God's Word and you begin to study it, you realize that God, through not just one culture or one time in history, has worked with those whom he has called for future responsibility. So I'd like to lay out today some of the things that are very clear in the Scripture that God does use and realize that regardless of our present position, whether we're a housewife, whether we have responsibilities perhaps over others in our employment, or if we simply are employed and working with our hands or with our skills and serving others, that regardless of those situations, every area that we'll cover today, that God's given us an opportunity to prepare for his kingdom and for rulership and responsibility in the manner that he wants. Because he knows, brethren, what he wants in us to fulfill the responsibilities that we've been given. In the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in verse 19... It's a passage we're all very familiar with. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. This is after God had given his law to the nation of Israel. He told them that they had a choice. 
And it's not my purpose to point out the reality of a choice, but rather the narrowness of what would lead to life. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Now, when you look at what God had set before them, it was a very specific, very clear manner in which to conduct one's life. And what the scripture is telling us is that outside of that choice, the choice described within the revelation that God had given to Israel, there was no other choice. That was it. That there was a way of life that was revealed. That way, the laws and the direction and the conduct that it involved led to life. Let's read on. It says, Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, and that you may love the Lord your God. And so this way of life also leads to a relationship, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life. This very way of life and the laws that were revealed literally led to a way of life that led them into a relationship with God, and with that, the promise of life. It says, For he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And so in this message, I would like to point out certain principles. I don't know that I will cover every principle, but certain principles, brethren, that will help us to be successful in what God is doing to prepare us for his kingdom. And the first point that I would like to make, and it's by far and away the most important. You know, sometimes when we speak, we might save the most important point for last. But in this case, I want to emphasize to you, I believe that this is the most important point, And that is to simply follow the path of obedience that God has laid out and given us knowledge of a certain way of life. And when we live that way of life, that we're doing the most important thing that will prepare us for the kingdom of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, when the commandments were given, we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29 that the children of Israel made an agreement. What they said was they would agree to and live by the instruction that they had received. And it's interesting in verse 29 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, God said, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments. What they said, which came from the mouth, was right. But you know, God sees beyond what comes from our lips. God sees the heart. And he saw in the people, although what they said was right, their heart wasn't there. And so he commented to his servant, he says that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And because their heart was not in their words, God said to 
Moses, his servant, he said, go say to them, return to your tents. But, you know, he then talked privately to Moses as we read on. Verse 31, but as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which you shall teach them. In other words, they were to be taught, and I believe in a way God was telling Moses that uh, you're going to teach them. They're going to undoubtedly say, we understand, but it will not be from the heart. But he did say to Moses, he said, you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I was, am giving them to possess. Therefore, you... He's speaking very specifically now to Moses. He had dismissed them. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And we certainly know that, you know, there's two ditches to any path. And either ditch, right or left, is off. And you're off the path. In our society, we tend to view the right ditch as being conservative, as someone who goes overboard and becomes pharisaical, and we tend to look at the left as being liberal or someone who does not adhere to the instruction of God's Word. The reality is, whether or not that was exactly God's meaning, uh, I don't know necessarily, that's part of our culture, but the concept of moving either direction. In, in other words, there's two opposite directions. One's to your right, other to your left. They're in opposite directions. Both of them will take you off the path. He goes on to tell Moses, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So God very clearly gave him instruction that you live according to my law, and you will be blessed, and the end result of that is life. You know, brother, when we live within the structure of God's way of life, it changes us. It affects how we think. It affects the decisions that we make. It affects our emotional reactions. When we literally follow a certain path, for instance, the keeping of the Sabbath, you begin to recognize not only the keeping of the Sabbath, but also that you're to be productive. Because the commandment is not just to rest on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is set apart because you work the other six days. And so through the observance of the Sabbath, the work ethic is taught. When you keep God's holy days, it requires in the observance of them that you become a planner, that you think ahead because you're saving, looking forward to something that you will observe in obedience to God's instruction. When you make a decision as you sit down in a restaurant to order food and you look at the menu and you recognize there are certain things that are not clean to eat. You're also making a decision about your life and that there are things in your life where you have to make choices. Not all choices are good, certainly not in this world and this society today. 
You know, brethren, there's so many things that take place in our life when we obey God's instruction. Sometimes they're very simple, but the fruits are a part of our very being. I've had many occasions as a minister when I've had difficult counseling. Someone's come to me as with a marital problem that would seem, if you listen to both sides and hear the issues and you hear all the hurt and sorrow that has taken place, that it's very difficult to say, well, this is what you should do and how you can resolve it. I've learned over the years that the best solution to most serious problems is to simply start first by beginning to obey God's instruction and not worry about all the little questions and nuances and issues and difficulties that may take place. Because if you begin to first obey what God says, many of those seemingly insurmountable problems, they, they disappear. They work, they work out. And so the most important thing you can do is to simply obey God. It's interesting, at the end time, in the book of Malachi, and it's a passage written here in the King James, it's at the end of the Old Testament, that there's very straightforward and clear instruction about returning to the law of God. In Malachi chapter 4, And in verse 4, and please notice here, it's in the context, if you look in verse 1, it says, Behold, the day is coming. And so it's talking about the end time. And it's talking about the individual who fears the name of God. In verse 4, it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant. We live in a time in the Christian world as a whole when people have divorced themselves from God's law. And they believe that they can have a relationship outside of the law of God. In fact, to many, many people, the Old Testament and the laws of God are almost viewed as an abomination. But the reality is here at the end of the Old Testament, God tells his servants, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. So he reminded, remember the commandments, but with that also remember the statutes and the judgments, the principles that God revealed to the nation of Israel. It brings out in verses 5 and 6, So behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. You know, we've understood this. Certainly one application of it is within the family. But it's also very clear that another application of this is spiritually. That as God's children, our hearts would be turned to those that God has used that have set a precedent and have been given to us as examples. And that we would follow in the same manner of path and and have the same heart that they had. It goes on, it says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So on a spiritual level, when you look in context of verse 4, this is returning literally to the example of obedience of the service of God that we have throughout the Scripture. It's so important for us to understand that in doing that, we are in fact participating in God's training program. 
There was an individual, I'll not turn to the example, but a king of Israel. His name was Saul. God gave him instruction. He thought he had a better way. And he followed most of God's instruction. But you can read the account where God said to him that obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, humanly, many times we think, well, we can go above and beyond. We can do these extra things. But you know what's most important to God is that we obey him because when we obey him, then a fruit takes place. And brethren, the fruit is in our life. It's in how we think and who we are and what we become. And when we recognize that, we also then understand the the concept that obedience is far superior to anything that we humanly can do. We also read in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 28, in verse 26, that we need to be careful about how we look at the things that are spiritual in our life. Because there's a way that seems right. Here in the book of Proverbs, it brings out, in this particular case, that we're foolish when we trust in our own thinking. And that's especially true in a spiritual part of our life. We know that that's the trap of Satan in this world. Many people feel that, well, as long as your heart's okay, whatever you do, it's all right. What they totally ignore is the fact that conduct changes the mind and the heart. It has a direct effect upon it. When I was a parent with children in my home, and I'm still a parent, they're just grown. Uh, My three children are now adults. But when they were in our home, and I was dealing with them at ages of 6, 9, 10, up through their teenage years, I had a wonderful blessing. You know, most of the time as a parent, it's a, you have your first go-around, and, and perhaps your oldest child uh, suffers the most because of it. I think sometimes they also get the greatest attention, and they're also strengthened by it. But I had the blessing of being a minister, and I visited various people's homes. And as I would go to their home, I'd see how they dealt with their children and, and what worked. I also learned, as I observed uh, and recognized situations where what they were doing wasn't working very well. And so I tried to observe both. And one thing I began to recognize after a period of time is that conduct changes attitude. And if you only deal with the attitude and you don't deal with the conduct, children can, they can put a smile on their face or they can, you know, uh, jump on your lap. And they will do all types of things to somehow get out of what they actually should be doing. And I remember particularly, I'm not going to mention whether it's my oldest or youngest son, but we lived in the state of Washington, and we had a patio. And I had, it was fairly large. I had covered it, uh, put a cover over up over it, and because we had cover and put some nicer furniture on it, I wanted it to be swept on occasion. And because it would easily, the, the dust and the dirt and pine needles would blow in on it. And so it became the responsibility of one of my children. And I remember this particularly because he did not like the job. And so every time I would mention, I'd say, well, son, the patio needs to be swept. His face would screw up. I mean, the attitude, because you know your children. I, I could just see the attitude. And the attitude would be really negative, would be like, well, you know, why am I the only one doing this? Uh, will you help me? 
can we put this off? Can we do it tomorrow? And I learned very quickly to just forget the attitude, not even worry about it, and just tell him, now you need to go out and you need to get the job done now. And I cannot tell you how many times, and especially at first, that he'd be out sweeping and, you know, he'd, he'd be brooming and it was not with a good attitude. But, you know, as the job got near the end and he realized it's going to be done and he had done a good job, then the attitude changed. And then it was like, well, this is over and, and now I can do other things. And, I, you know, he knew that uh, when he did the job that he'd be rewarded for it. You know, sometimes we need to understand that conduct leads to changes in the mind and heart. God knows that. And so God requires first in our preparation obedience. And as we obey him, brethren, in all the things we do, and we strive to live his way of life, we're right in the middle participating in his training program because the lessons that God's teaching us through obedience to his instruction, his way of life, the observance of the Sabbath, the observance of the holy days, the very meaning of each of those days and our participation in them, all of those things are preparing our character and our person for responsibility, both physically in terms of being kings and having authority, but also, brethren, spiritually. Because as you read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, it says kings and priests. That passage could also be translated as a kingdom of priests. But there are other passages that make it very clear that we'll also have the responsibility of administrative authority, not only spiritually, because Jesus Christ used the example of rewarding his servants with five and ten cities. And so it's very clear in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, it includes both. And when you follow obedience and obey God's laws, yielding to him, brethren, in every choice and decision made in life, you're in a program that's training you, shaping you, and helping you to fulfill the purpose of your calling. Here in Proverbs chapter 28, in verse 26, it says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. The implication being that wisdom doesn't always come from ourself, that it comes from another source. And we certainly know that that source is God. In Proverbs chapter 4, in verse 20, I'm going to start reading here. Proverbs chapter 4. It says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence. You know, when you obey God, it also needs to be from the heart. Because as God looked at ancient Israel, what they did outwardly and what they said was not pleasing to God. And in our relationship to God, brethren, in keeping the Sabbath or his holy days or decisions made, we need to literally look beyond just the outward. Now, one leads to the other. 
And if you continue in obedience, it will lead to a change of heart. As we read on, it says, For out of it, that is the heart, springs the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. You know, what we teach and what we admonish in God's church in terms of obedience to God's law is a standard that God's people have always followed. They are paths that have been established. That's why we look at and talk of the faith of our fathers because it was their conduct. It says, do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. So the first and most important participation and the most important thing we can do and it's very important we understand it is simply obey god's laws obey his instructions and brethren in doing that you're being trained a training is taking place a change is taking place and as you do that through your life god will challenge you there will be trials and tests but in those as you continue to obey there will be tremendous growth that growth will take place where god wants it and rather than the areas that are important to him in preparing you for future responsibility. The next point I'd like to make is in that process is that you are teachable, that you're willing to be corrected, that you're looking to grow. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5, which actually draws back from a section in Proverbs, it talks about the relationship we have and how God does deal with us. Because we're in a training program that we're all a part of. It's like an athletic program. If you're training, for instance, to be a football player and you have a specific position, there are certain things that every quarterback in terms of preparation will go through. But then each individual has certain skills and abilities. And the coach will work not only with the principles that apply to every quarterback, whether it be the release of the ball or the uh, path and, and straightness of the ball or t- developing touch. There's all kinds of different things that are done in different sports. But he will also work with him individually. And God also works with us individually. Here in Hebrews 12, it says... Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. No, brother, that happens in different ways. One obvious and very clear area is when we go through a personal trial. The Bible also reveals to us that God works through the church or through the body. And when we're a part of the body and the church experiences something, we're a part of that. I look back at my life and realize that many trials that I went through were not trials that were involved in my home or my marriage or or specifically where I served in God's work. They were trials that the church went through. And yet they deeply affected my life, and they revealed in in many cases areas where I could grow. 
But you know, if I had been independent or apart from the church, or I thought, well, that's just somebody else's problem, I would not have grown. Now, we grow first by God's direct involvement in our life, those things that are personal, but an area of growth also that this passage applies to is when God works with the entire body. Now, that may be in your local congregation, but it may also be what God does and what takes place within his church as a whole. In verse 7, it says, If you endure chastising, God deals with you as with sons. And so you have to accept it. You have to accept at times that there are trials and difficulty as you strive to obey God. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? goes on to say, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. You know, there are times when people, at least in terms of, uh, let's say, a a church going through trial, when they have chosen this path, they said, I'm not going to be a part of that. You've got difficulties or trials or you have someone that has a problem. Uh, In our present time, there are people who, who choose immediately to separate themselves. When God literally reveals in his word that he works with us as a body and as his body. It goes on, verse 9, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? that we literally understand and yield ourselves to God when we go through trial. You know, God knows when you go through a loss of job or whether perhaps there's a difficulty in uh, your life with family or perhaps you have a personal weakness and you're trying to make a change and you're struggling with it. Or if something happens within the church that's difficult for you. He's not ignorant of it. You know, Jesus Christ is a living head of the church. He said that if a hair falls from our head, the Father's aware of it. And so we need to have a a keen awareness of the knowledge and awareness that God has of what is in our mind, in our heart, and in our life. And so when we go through these things, it's very appropriate for us to understand God sees, he knows, he is very aware, but we also need to be very respectful to try to understand what are we learning and what lesson. Not every lesson is because you've done something wrong. It really is not. There are things God wants to prepare you for, and you may be doing right. You might be trying to do things to the very best of your ability, but God wants to make you more fruitful. He wants to hone you. You can read that in the book of John, John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. You can read where someone's producing fruit. They're doing good. And what does God do? He prunes them. <laughs> he makes them more fruitful. And so every trial is not necessarily because of, of wrongdoing. Sometimes we go through situations in life where God's purpose is that we grow. And he may be very pleased with our growth but he simply wants us because we have potential to do more. Now, it is important how we react. It says, for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. And that's what a loving parent does. You try to guide your children at the very best of your ability. 
But, you know, we're limited. And sometimes we are unable to see the heart. Or sometimes, you know, we don't know exactly because we are not on the scene. I had a, have a brother, and I know both of us. I, I'm not uh, alone in this. He also did the same. Sometimes we'd end up maybe, and there was a difficulty between us. But as soon as my father would come on the scene, the automatic response was, you know, he did it. <laughs> He's the blame. It wasn't me. And sometimes it worked. And on the, some occasions, the wrong person got punished. And we were able to deceive our father. Now, I think in the balance of things, it probably balances itself out uh, over time. But, you know, God doesn't do that. God isn't deceived. He's not misdirected. He doesn't have the limitations we have even in loving and trying to guide our children. The Bible is very plain. It says, He for our profit. God never misses the mark in working in our life. For what purpose? What goal? That we may be partakers of His holiness. Now, there's also instruction here that's very important when we go through a time of growth or a time of correction where God's trying to teach and teach us something, help us grow. It says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's that you use it, you grow. But notice here also, verse 12, it says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Do not get so discouraged when you go through a trial, you're facing a challenge that it hinders you. It may be painful, but, you know, if an individual reacts with tremendous discouragement and they hang on to that or it affects their heart and their attitude and they hang on to that, you know, God warns us. He says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Don't just always be in, you know, a hangdog type of spirit and attitude. It says, make straight paths for your feet. Get active. Try to do what you can. Get involved. Take every step you can. Be praying as hard as you can and turning to God, looking for direction. In other words, you get very involved in trying to move forward. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. It's also interesting. I'll comment on verse 14 because, you know, most of the time in life when we have trials, it usually involves other people. And I think sometimes it's important for us to recognize maybe God's using someone else. Maybe they're at fault. Maybe their hands are not clean. But the reality is if God's the one working in our life, then God's focusing on what he wants us to grow in. And he tells us here, verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Don't seek to blame and find fault with someone else when you know that no matter how wrong they are, it's revealed something that needs to change in you. If nothing else, maybe just how you react to someone. If somebody comes to you with a bad attitude... Does that mean you have to have a bad attitude? Does it justify you having a bad attitude? 
Absolutely not. Not if you're responsible and provide the leadership that you should in such a situation. Because if someone is angry with you, do you automatically become angry? No, we should not. It tells us here that we should understand we do not react in that way, nor do we blame others. We take responsibility. I guess that's the very best way to summarize this passage is that you accept that responsibility. It says, without which no one will see the Lord. It goes on to warn, it says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. That bitterness and anger and frustration, they can be very hurtful. They can cut very deeply, but they do not produce good fruit. And so it's important that we're correctable. It's important that God can teach us. It's important that in our spiritual life, that in every area we're looking to grow. In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 19, in verse 27, it says, Cease listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. If we, if we come to the point where we cannot be instructed, we cannot learn, we know it all or we believe that we do, you know, God says you're in danger then of straying from the words of knowledge. Even the things that you understand, the things that you know or think that you know, it's a warning to us. And so this brings me to the next point that I think is also extremely important in God working in our life, and that is that we be a good disciple or a good student. Because, as Mr. Armstrong pointed out many, many years ago, one of the very important aspects of what God is doing in our life and what he will do in the establishment of his kingdom is re-educating of a process of relearning. You know, that process involves far more than just knowledge. It literally involves knowledge that then leads to choices, decisions, and a way of thinking. Here in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 55, and it clearly tells us in this passage why we should be constant students and readers of the Word of God. In Isaiah 55, in verse 1, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God's offering us nourishment that is priceless. Why do you spend money for that? for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and i will make an everlasting covenant with you the sure mercies of david and so God says, if you're willing to come to him and drink of his word and be instructed by him, that he'll, as he has with each of us who've received his spirit, who've been baptized, 
which has come through the knowledge of God's word. God's entered into a covenant. Notice in verse 8 of this passage, because God's saying, do these things, why? What's the reason? My thoughts are not your thoughts. You know, our natural human way of thinking, brethren, does not reflect God's word. We can look in our world today and we can see that in so many different aspects of life. We, we live in a society here in the nation of the United States where we have very large welfare programs. The intent of those programs actually are to help people. The Bible really shows us that the way to help someone is to help them to develop skills and abilities so that they become productive. In fact, the scripture is very strong about it. It says, if a man was, who is willing, or excuse me, who is able, is not willing to work, he should not eat. But we totally reject that kind of logic or reasoning in our society. We reject many other principles in the scripture. The Bible talks about, and you read in the scripture, that someone who's worked hard and is successful, that they're to be rewarded. In our society, and it's not just here in America, certainly, but around the world, we tend to take from those who've worked hard and successful and give it to those who have not been productive. Now, we certainly live in a world today where greed has twisted the right balance and what would be God's principles and his way of life in applying those principles. But it's a way of thinking. And it's not the way of thinking that most people share. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And you start reading God's word and you examine it, you see that time after time after time in almost every aspect of life. You know, we live in a world today where the concept of actually physically disciplining a child is rejected. God says if you discipline a child, you're truly showing them love. We live in a society that says if you love your children, you would not discipline them. Now, there's certainly a huge and tremendous difference between proper discipline and abuse. And to abuse a child is despicable. But to actually love and train a child as God instructs, it's not, not what is accepted in our world. So God tells us, says, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And there's so many areas of life where this, it's, it's across every aspect of life, literally. It says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now, we see that. We see this natural process that God has created that we can observe and we are very thankful for. You know, we're thankful when we have rain in due season and our garden, our crops prosper because we enjoy the fruit of it. It nourishes and strengthens our body. Notice here verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. If you go back to the beginning of this chapter, it's talking about somebody who's eating of and participating in what God has provided. 
And what it's speaking of specifically is his word. We have it. Notice what it says. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. You know, if you eat and you drink of God's word and you study it, it is not going to be fruitless. But it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. If you take what God has given, brethren, it's going to be successful. It's going to work. And it's going to work in your life, regardless of our situation, culture, or, or race or sex or whatever aspect of human life that we may you know, differ from from others. It's going to work. In Proverbs chapter 4, as we read and study God's Word, it's important for us to understand certain things that we should seek. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. Now, I'll skip down a bit here because it's very clear that Solomon was given instruction by his father and God inspired him to write. Verse 5, it says, get wisdom, get understanding. God wants us to take a certain approach to life, and that is that we understand the things we do and why we do them. Now, with that, there's also wisdom. Because if you understand, you can make plain choices and good choices. For many people, it's not a way of life. And it's something that you have to cultivate. And I would encourage you to do. There are many things that we use in daily life that many people don't know how they work. A good example of that would be a faucet or plumbing, a toilet. You know, how does it work? Some people understand, many do not. We drive cars. How do they work? You know, what are the principles? You know, if you take that approach in life, and you also then carry it over into the things of God's Word, and it becomes your very approach to life, because really it's, it's an encouragement here to a young person to take this approach, that you not only learn, that you not only gain knowledge, but you actually try to gain understanding. When my children were in school, and they were young, I would encourage them. I, said, I'm not, I, I want you to get good grades. But far more importantly, I really want you to understand the subject so that you know what you're being taught. And spiritually, that's also very, very important. In Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs chapter 3, and starting in verse 13, it says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And then it goes on and it talks about the tremendous value that that has in life. Well, that's true physically, but it's also very true spiritually. And it's important for us to understand, brethren, that these words literally given to us came from a son of the father who will be king of Israel. A man that God said was a man after his own heart. But when you read about the life of David, you realize that this was a man who constantly meditated on God's law. 
In fact, in his writings, he said that through meditation and through the laws of God, he came to the point where he had more understanding than his teachers. Now, how did that happen? The reason is, is because he spent more time and he went further than his teachers in seeking to truly understand and the applications and the, all the nuances of the laws of God. It's a wonderful example of what we should be doing as a disciple. It's one thing to sort of know what we teach or what the Bible says. It's another level, brethren, that we should strive for to truly understand. And then it's another level to see the wisdom of God and to try to understand what God is doing and what his purpose is and what the fruit is and what it accomplishes. When we strive for that, then we're truly being the kind of student God wants us to be. We're preparing ourselves not only to have a knowledge of his way of life, brethren, but when given responsibility to know how to do wisely, how to make good decisions, how to make wise judgments. So seek to be a good disciple. Daily read and study and learn of God's word and, and drink in of it. It's a very important part of the program that God has given to us and given to his servants through time to prepare them for future responsibility. There's two other points I'd also like to make. I'll make them briefly. The fourth point is to be a doer. We live particularly in a time when society is passive. There are millions of people who live life watching TV. We have shows today that are reality shows because the truth is the people who watch them have never done anything real. <laughs> and so they're intrigued by something that's, that is real. Now, I'm not saying it's not, you know, occasionally relaxing and good to relax, to watch occasionally something that might entertain or to lift us up. But, you know, if you're going to watch a fishing show to learn how, that's great. But take your son fishing. If you're watching something that has to do with life and, and that's all you do, then you're not a doer. And God wants us to live life. It's a unique problem, particularly to our time in society, but God wants us to be doers and to live and to experience life. He doesn't want us to watch it vicariously. He wants us to be involved and be a part of the things that happen in life. And there, there's so many passages in the scripture that you can read about the importance of being involved and being a, uh, one who labors. In Proverbs 14 and verse 23, it says, In all labor there is profit. You know, even when you make a mistake, you learn. But you're involved, you're doing. It's one of the wonderful things we teach our young people in our youth programs. At first, many of them are kind of reluctant to do something new because in our society, if you see someone play a sport, they do it so well and so gracefully that none of us really could compare ourselves to the professional athlete. But does that mean we should not participate? No, in fact, 
That's what we try to do at camp. We try to get our young people to participate, to get them involved, to get them be doers. And sometimes there's a reluctance. But the experiences is that when they see other young people that are same age or they, you know, close to them, and especially friends, and if they get involved and they, well, they're not that good and, you know, they're not uh, a professional, but they're having a good time, then it encourages them. And the camp experience in that way is a wonderful experience because it teaches our young people the value of being involved, of being a doer, of being active. It's also very true for all of us. In the book of James, in James chapter 1, in terms of our faith, in terms of practicing as a Christian, in James chapter 1, in verse 22, it talks about the importance of being a doer. It says, be you doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, some of God's instruction to us is active. And it talks about helping your neighbor. It talks about practicing here later in this very same chapter, pure and undefiled religion. It says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. That's not just the responsibility of the ministry or the elders or the deacons in God's church. Those are responsibilities of every Christian. And there are many other such instruction in God's word. So be a doer. Don't, don't allow yourself to fall into, I think the most you know, successful trap that Satan has today is to remove people from the experience of life. He's, he's, in many cases, they remove people completely out of just the day-to-day activity of life. They spend hours and hours, and they live their life vicariously through the lives of others, whether it's through television or sports or other areas where they may have a specific interest. Live life. Be a doer. Now, when you do that, you're going to learn that you fall. You make mistakes. In Proverbs chapter 24, it brings out the fact that, and I think it also uh, makes it clear that somebody who is righteous is a doer because it talks about how many times they can fall. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times. And we don't tend to think that way. We tend to think that, well, if somebody's doing right, righteousness, that they're not going to fall and stumble. But the reality is that, you know, at times when we strive to do something, we do fail. But that leads to change. That leads to repentance. And, brethren, that change equates to growth. And so be a doer. And in that, examine the example of others. You know, it's interesting in the scripture, God gives us good examples. The examples of individuals like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joseph, and Daniel, and the servants of God throughout the New Testament. But the Bible also provides other examples. Individuals who failed, like Cain, like Saul, like Judas. And you can read through the scripture and you find from time to time, God gives us examples. So they're a warning that 
we don't make the same mistake. Because, see, you can learn by being a doer where you make the mistake, but you can also learn by reading and studying is something you're involved in or something that you're going to do by learning from the mistakes of others. Both of those work together in our life, and both of them are a part of God's instruction and his word to us, brethren, to help us to grow and prepare for the kingdom of God. And the last point I'd like to make is to be patient, to be patient with yourself and with the process. Now, when I mean patience, what I mean by that is don't get discouraged. Understand that if you're in a situation with all that really is challenging you day to day in life is to simply obey and follow God's way of life and your duties in life, let's say you're retired or rather simple, you can serve in a few occasions. Understand that what you're doing is fulfilling what God wants and be patient because you're on the path to success. And good things, especially things that change our life and change our heart and and change our very being, where we become, as when we were baptized, the new creation, the creation that comes up out of that water, brethren. That's a, a lifelong process. And so do not get discouraged. Be patient. And, you know, particularly at the end time, the Bible warns us, whether it's in Matthew 24, where it talks about enduring to the end. Because the quality of our society, a, a fruit of the life in which we live, which is so fast-paced and so many things happening, is people do not have patience. They don't have patience with others, and in many cases do not even have patience with their own progress or their self and their life. So be patient. I think the first and most important reason for patience is because God is patient. Notice in Second Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. It brings out here that, you know, God is is very patient. In fact, the term that's used here is long-suffering. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Now, why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And one of the lessons we learn through God's holy days as we observe them is that God has a plan. And he has patiently, and you might say working hard, because Jesus Christ is at work preparing for his kingdom. The Father is busy preparing sons to enter into his family. Rather, working hard, but patiently working forward to those things that lie ahead. We need to have that same attitude. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, It talks about one of the qualities of the Philadelphia Church of God in terms of its church era and and, and their strengths and weaknesses. One of the strengths it mentions here very plainly in verse 10, it says, because you have kept my command to persevere. You know, perseverance is an interesting term. It means that what you're doing is right that you're on the right path, you're doing the right things. But you keep at it. (laughs) You don't try to change, you don't go off somewhere else, you don't do something different. You just keep right on doing because what you're doing is right. The same thing, in a sense, is true with endurance. 
but perseverance particularly, that you persevere with what you're doing. You keep on track. It's interesting because of this particular quality that the Scripture says, I also will keep you from the hour which shall come upon the whole world. Now, we know that in part that perseverance very directly relates to what we are doing in terms of God's work, that we have persevered and that we have a tremendous job ahead of us. And so it's an area, brethren, where we see something that's true of the church, of the body that we're part of. But, you know, it's also an admonition to us individually. And it's very important that we have patience, that we are patient, that we don't give up, that we do persevere, we hang in there, we, we stick with it. When we go through a trial or difficulty, we do not let it discourage us that instead, brethren, we push forward. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the spirit and attitude of those that we know God will be using because they're set forth as examples to us, as examples of faith. And it speaks of their focus. And it's very important we have this focus. In Hebrews chapter 11, and starting here in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith not having received the promises. It wasn't something they received. Now, they were blessed in life, and they had many wonderful things in this physical life. But, you know, brethren, if you're focusing God's churches about this life, you're missing the boat. Our focus and our reason here is for what lies ahead. It's the new beginning that, as we look in the world about us, is right around the corner. We see many events taking place. They should not discourage us. We may live through some very challenging times, brethren. And there may be young people think, well, you know, why go to school or why do this or why do that? I hope that all of us understand that there's something that is just beyond all of that. Tomorrow's world, the world ahead, the kingdom of God. And the things we do today to prepare for that, they're very important. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to use the analogy of running a race. And he would talk about a gun lap. The gun lap's the most difficult. It's when your body hurts the most and you're aching, especially if it's a long race. But you don't give up. What you do is you push the harder. And you understand that you have a goal. And you can accomplish that goal. And we need to have that same heart. We need to imitate those who've gone before us. Says these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had been called to mind, or if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know, brethren, all of us need to understand that the individual, or it is God himself, by our obedience to him, by our submitting ourselves and responding to him, whether as a part of his church or individually in our life, 
our drinking in of his word, our active involvement as a Christian. The brethren, all of those things are the very things that God has used and is using to prepare his children for his kingdom. Those things are preparing us for kings and priests that God desires, that he will elect to put into office. So please understand the things that you are doing within God's church in obedience to God. They're the very foundation of what qualifies you and will qualify you to be a king and priest at the return of our Lord and Savior.